With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 129. Bienvenidos, bitches, and booty binafi. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? No, there are many <laughs> well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. <laughs> I just was thinking about that lady at CrimeCon. Are you? A podcast about guys, serial killers. <laughs> we do them too. Now we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, you can check it out for the different ways that you can support the show. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about Reverend DeVernon Legrand, who headed St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord in Brooklyn. Okay, Brooklyn, <laughs> we go hard. Okay. <laughs> He recruited many teenage, quote-unquote, nuns who solicited money for his church. He also sexually abused the nuns and murdered a bunch of people, including Uh two wives, two teenage girls, and two men. All right. Well, uh, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. So it was a busy week. It's been real busy at work. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just trying to, you know, tread water. Yeah, keep my head above water. Yeah. Same over here. Uh, I had to take a couple days off. And you know when you take time off, you're like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, this, and that. And then and you, you don't. don't do any of it. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> know that very well. <laughs> that's what happened. 
Um, but it was an excellent weekend. My mom was in town. My uh, nice. I talked about this before. My mom is a hundred percent garifuna, uh, and we did a bunch of um, fun family stuff, including. Um, so I'm a Zumba instructor, and uh, I did did a Zumba class with my mom where we did punta dance. And oh, punta nice. is a garifuna style dance, so that was fun. Sweet. And she, yeah, she brought back um, from her travels a shirt that says like uh, straight out of Griga. Uh, Don Griga is a is a is a town where there's a lot of Garifuna people where my That's mom is from. Funny. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, a shirt that said um, like mixed with Belizean and Belizeans on the front. And there's all these like Belizean words and stuff. So it's nice. Uh, it, it, she 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 brought back merch and then the conversation came up. What about my podcast merch, mom? She <laughs> told me at one point she bought a mug. Lies. She didn't. She she did not buy a mug. She says she forgot to hit checkout. Well, mom, you are being exposed today on the show. Uh, 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 one another Garifuna word is nege for bullshit, and this is pure nege, mom. So anyway, but other than that, it was a great weekend. Uh, and awesome. uh, yeah, happy to be. We don't usually record on Sunday, so no. um, yeah, big fun. Here we are. Um, here we are. Let's uh, mosey on over to the the post office here and get into some listener letters. Hello, angels. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> angels. So we got a message on our website. It was on our episode on uh, Eugene Britt and the person who wrote it is named Hurst. Yeah. And they said uh, about the picture that we posted of Eugene Britt, they said, that's not Eugene Britt. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, Britt is one of the many black serials who killed white children whose photo is not allowed to appear in any form of media. He only exists in words. And I don't know about that, but... uh, <laughs> Just wanted to say thank you for bringing this to our attention. Um, also wanted to bring up an interesting point because the news is racist. The images and facts published are not always accurate, and we do exhaustive uh, research. When and- we say we, we mean Beth. <laughs> <laughs> and we're proud of that. But uh, we did post a photo of uh, Brit, who we thought was Brit, because it showed up in Google Images as Eugene Brit, and, mm-hmm. and it's not. Right. And uh, so I did a lot of Googling after we got this message, could not find a, a picture of Eugene Brit. So right. the photos that come up as Eugene Victor Brit are this guy, mm-hmm. other black serial killers like Darren Dion Van and Alton Coleman, and all uh, people who we've covered before. So yeah. when he when when we got this message, and I I was I googled, I was like, oh my gosh, this is all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if any of you have a photo of Brit, please uh, send it on over to us. Um, other than that, we don't we don't have one so <laughs> yeah yeah so and you know we're always learning and and trying to do our best so th- right. again thank you for pointing this out yes and, uh, thank you yeah. what else is in that mailbag we got an instagram message from may suasion okay <laughs> and they said just finished today's podcast it was great per usual <laughs> thank you And they said, I felt triggered a little bit hearing a story based in New Zealand. I experienced the worst racism in New Zealand. They're right there with the United States. (laughs) I had a work visa. And after being there for a month, I cried and called my mom every day so she could help me leave early. Yeah, that's that sucks. Yeah. 
so um, I guess there is a lot of racism in New Zealand more than than I knew. More than yeah, any of us realize. So that that uh, episode researching it uh, was illuminating for yes. us. Yeah. Um. So I thought it was awesome there. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, right? It's it's the promised land. It's the man, land of milk and honey. Even black, a lot of black people. In America, I think Americans in general, I, I think of Sonia Renee Taylor, the black activist who wrote uh, Your Body is Not a, an Apology. She was like, fuck America, I'm going to New Zealand. And just because she was trying to get rid of, get away from white supremacy. But right. Somebody should have her listen to this to Fruit Loops because it turns out it's, it's a lot there true. too. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a global issue. Um, yes. So hip hop Strangely enough. <laughs> would you believe it, girls? Uh, so shout out to Hearst Hip Hop Air Horns to you Hip Hop Air Horns to May Suajion yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Yes, and we got some um, some love in the form of monetary payments and support. Thank from, you very uh, much. Thank you yes. all very much. Brandy <laughs> L, Marcus, Marcus, and Carrie E here at, at Air Horns for y'all. So uh, this is for Brandy. Oh, Brandy, hey. Oh, Brandy, hey, who helped the pod? Who helped the pod? Help Fruit Loops pod. Who helped the pod? Help Fruit Loops pod. Brandy saved the day. Oh, Brandy, hey, she taught me how. Oh, she taught me how to pod, to pod, to pod and pray. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was a little off. My choir teacher would be ashamed, but hip hop air horns nonetheless. Yeah, thank you, Brandy. <laughs> okay, Carrie E, this is for you. Carrie E gave us the most handsome donation we've received to date. Yes. And we are so grateful. Actually, yes. um, I was going to talk to you about this, Beth. There was the, um, somebody asked on Twitter, are you guys going to not enter into win best BIPOC true crime show on these awards? But it's like $20 to enter. And I was thinking, oh, we could we use could Carrie use E's yeah. donation. So thank you, Carrie yes, E. thank you. Here is your tune. Just like Carrie, I got the Carrie. Turn on some Carrie. Carrie is the soul of the pod. Carrie makes a happy pod. Get down, get down, get funky. Carrie makes the clouds roll by, baby. Carrie makes me want to sing. Doobie, doobie, oh, Carrie <laughs> is a joy to bring. Hey, Carrie is my heart and soul, more precious than gold. <laughs> and that is for you, Carrie. Now, Marcus, the best fruity in the whole rap game, Marcus. <laughs> this is for you. He said, oh, he wanted our 90s R&B. And okay. this, this is what I got. Oh, boy, I feel like I'm going to destroy this. <laughs> Not in a good way. Here we go. Okay, so. Oh, when you post stories every night, fucked up shit and news to crime, <laughs> I get kind of hectic inside. Oh, Marcus, I'm so into you. Fruit Loops loves you. Yes, we do. Facebook group is lit all the time. <laughs> but it's just a wee in heaven. With Marcus, I love you, Marcus. <laughs> There's no beginning and there is no end. Feels like we're dreaming, but we're crime sleuthing. 
Okay, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Brandy yeah, L, Marcus M, Carrie E. Uh, couldn't do this show without y'all. So <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour a day? Hmm. Spend more time with your kids? Go to the hmm. gym? Hmm. Work on a hobby? Take a nap. <laughs> Can you do all those things in 60 minutes? Just kidding. <laughs> you know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Yeah. But what we do with that time, we don't always know. But the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what it is. And therapy can help you figure that out. Find what matters to you most and make it a priority so that you can find the time to do more of it. Yeah. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. Mm -hmm. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And I've been in and out of therapy most of my life. Same. And it has had such a positive influence on my life that I honestly do not know who I would be without therapy. And I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know either. <laughs> Listen, Beth and I have both used BetterHelp. Yeah. And we love it. And if you are thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com fruit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today, we're talking about Reverend DeVernon Doc Legrand, who procured women and girls to hustle the streets dressed as nuns. And he also sexually abused them. Mm. Over a period of two decades, 20 or so people vanished from the Legrand household and were never seen again. 20 years is a long time to uh, have like a body count of yeah, a yeah. trail of bodies and nobody uh, do anything, take note, but we know why that is. Yes. Anyway, uh, now we're going to get into some stats. Here we go. Now, Legrand was born in 1924 in the Jim Crow South in Larenburg, North Carolina. North Kakalaka, as I like to say. Uh, he has several AKAs. DeVernon, AKA the Reverend, AKA Bishop, AKA Doc. Now, he was a rapist, child abuser, self-proclaimed bishop. Usually you have to get appointed bishop um, by <laughs> A, a church organization. You can't just decide I'm going to be a bishop. But anyway, he uh, did. He did. He <laughs> did that. Uh, and head of the St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord and a serial killer. 
He had 12 plus victims, but given the time, the location and the type of victims, uh, mostly BIPOC black people, uh, his actual body count is unknown. His crimes took place from 1963 to 1976 in New York, and he was arrested in May of 1976. His victims were mostly women who were his wives and members of his church. And Beth said he also had some male victims. Uh, His M.O. was shooting and beating. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, and he did. He died there in 2006. (laughs) Uh, His victims, now we don't know all their names, so rest in power, kings, queens, and to all the victims of the Legrand crime family. But the names we do know are Gladys Stewart, 18, her sister Yvonne Rivera, 16, and Soros was approximately 30, Ernestine Timmons was 33, Elizabeth Brown was 15, Jeffrey Miranda was 25, Howard Tippins was approximately 50. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, let's talk about religion. Give me that old time religion. (laughs) Specifically, the holiness movement. The movement is defined by its emphasis on the doctrine of a second work of grace, which is a, quote, transforming interaction with God, unquote, Hmm. leading to Christian perfection or, in other words, spiritual maturity. This is separate from and subsequent to the first work of grace, which is new birth or accepting God into your heart, what people now call being born again. And by the way, uh, perfection, this idea of perfectionism and Christianity. Welcome to Culture Corner. Perfectionism is a a white supremacist colonizer Christian thing. I don't think BIPOC, Black and, and Indigenous communities really valued perfection from um, the standpoint that we do. Yeah, I think you're right. We're encouraged to strive for today. Um, So just wanted to point that out. Anyway, the holiness movement dates back to 1784 when John Wellesley founded Methodism after the Anglican Church abandoned its American believers during the American Revolution. Why they do that for? From the outset, the model of colonial American Methodism was, quote, to spread Christian holiness over these lands, end quote. But to be fair, nobody asked for it. Nobody asked for it, (laughs) but uh, they got it. Yeah, okay. In 1843, about a dozen ministers withdrew from the Methodist Episcopal Church to found the Wesleyan Methodist Church of America. Julia A.J. Foote, a black woman, was ordained as the first woman deacon in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church and the second to be ordained as an elder. And she was a leader in the Wesleyan holiness movement in the 1800s. Sizable numbers of Protestants from the rural areas of the Midwest and South joined the holiness movement. They were very active in works of social justice, including various compassionate ministries, interracial work, temperance, and women's suffrage. From 1850 onwards, it produced a number of women who ministered as evangelists, Bible study leaders, and even a bishop. Whoa! Yeah, such examples inspired other women like the Salvation Army's Catherine Booth and Frances Willard of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In the early to mid-20th century, tent revival, Lord, sinner Revival. Uh, tent revival services. Now, I don't know if you've, have you ever been to a revival? Because it's no. a party. It's a Holy yeah. Ghost party. It's a I've lot of fun. videos, but I've, no, I, it's not my bag. It gets it's crazy. not my bag, baby. Well, it wasn't mine either. I was just forced to go by my parents. But uh, it, I mean, you know, 
considering the alternative, I mean, and by alternative, I mean white worship spaces that are super boring. Very boring, uh, yeah. Uh, Tent Revival is pretty lit. Uh, so Tent Revival services conducted by traveling evangelist ministers were a common sight and a summer tradition, especially in the South. Initially, the practice was pragmatic. In the 1800s, tent revivals or camp meetings brought religion to frontier areas in states that lacked established churches. By the 1920s, the tradition had become institutionalized and served two purposes, to stir up the faithful and to attract new congregants. Um, I was thinking about religion today and... Um, Churches and congregations are run by people, human beings, right, who right. are fallible, but also churches are businesses, right? They need yes. to keep the lights on. So you yeah. have to keep, quote unquote, growing the flock yep. um, to keep the money coming, right? Yeah. Um, and so it just it was just an interesting thought I I had about the economy of Christianity. Anyway, uh, it's not here to offend people. Just those are my thoughts. Uh, so of the, some of the preachers were actually just grifters. Others were earnest and affiliated with legitimate religious groups. One of the latter was William J. Seymour, who was a black Pentecostal preacher who sparked the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California in 1906. This revival drew large crowds of believers as well as media coverage that focused on the controversial Pentecostal religious practices, as well as the racially integrated worship services, which everybody was freaked out about. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, yeah, I mean, during during enslavement, there was a white Bible and there was a black Bible. Um, two different. I mean, the way religion has been used and sort of catered to um, carry forth individuals goals uh, is kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the Azusa Street Revival swept through the western portion of the United States. Seymour's leadership of the revival, founding of the Apostolic Faith Movement and the publication of the Apostolic Faith Newspaper, launched him into prominence within the Pentecostal movement. Pentecostalism is a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit and the direct experience of the presence of God by the believers. Pentecostalism gets its name from the day of of the Pentecost, when, according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus's disciples, leading them to speak in many languages as evidence that they had been baptized in the Spirit. Mm. Speaking tongues, catching the Holy Ghost. Yep. Pentecostalism is characterized by several unique doctrines and practices, including baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second blessing after salvation, similar to the second work of grace in the holiness movement. Some of the popular Pentecostal churches during this time were the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, and the Pentecostal Holiness Church. Interestingly, in many Pentecostal churches, women are given the opportunity to serve as preachers, missionaries, and in some cases as pastors. But they can't wear pants. Uh, don't don't fact check me on that. But I think I, that might be the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, but they may not be able to wear pants in the Pentecostal church either. I don't know. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and, and you uh, couldn't wear pants. That's what I recall. Is okay. That was the. Wendy, the... You can't wear pants. It's church. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I'll stay home and play Super Mario Brothers. Now, in Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues is considered a 
direct evidence of spirit baptism, as is the exercise of all spiritual gifts or charismata. Charismata are powers or talents considered divinely bestowed, miraculous gifts, which does include speaking in tongues, but also such things as prophecy and healing. Thus, Pentecostalism and its theology spawned the charismatic movement. And there's this funny YouTube clip of this girl, this little white girl in, in a Pentecostal like church. So church. I don't know if it's exactly. And she's like, the blessings come in. The blessings come in. Blah, 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 blah. She's speaking tongues <laughs> on YouTube. But oh people use it now as like, it's like a meme. She's memefied. Oh. But anyway, that's what I think of when people are like speaking in tongues. The blessings come in. The blessings come in. <laughs> At the beginning of the charismatic movement, existing Wesleyan holiness denominations started adopting the Pentecostal message. Although these charismatics were more likely than Pentecostals to believe that speaking in tongues was not necessary as evidence of spirit baptism. A lot of the mega churches that exist today are modern charismatic churches, as are a lot of popular televangelists who then spawn the prosperity gospel, which equates Christian faith with material and particular financial success. Yeah. It has a long history in American culture with figures like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, those <laughs> eyelashes, woo! <laughs> success. Uh, Joel Olstein. Joel Olstein. don't let anybody on my property during a terrible <laughs> flood in Texas. Uh, and Benny Hinn and Joyce Meyer, those two I'm not familiar with, but uh, you get the picture. Yeah, it's very popular among charismatic preachers in the evangelical tradition because, uh, you know, it makes them rich. Oh, yes. <laughs> and they have an explanation for it. God will bless you with riches if you're a good Christian. Blessed. And they say bless, bless with like a S-H, bless you, bless you. <laughs> um, honestly, it grosses me out. <laughs> Of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> Not only does it allow these people to fleece their flock, but it also explains poverty in that uh, you're just not a good enough Christian. Right, right. Do better and give us all your spare money. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they never even read the Bible, which says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And these people just love money. So. <laughs> yes, yes. But there are, I mean, to your, to your point, the Bible says that, but it also, there's, there's a, a verse for any point you want to make. Yeah. Uh, there is verses in the Bible about giving your money to the church, tithing 10%. Oh, giving, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah, that. Yeah, there yeah. is. Mm -hmm. But uh... but who's right? Which one is right? Which, which one do we go with, God? I don't know. I'm confused. <laughs> well, it does say you should tithe some money to the to the church, but it doesn't say anything about how if you if you tithe money to the church, then you'll be prosperous and have lots of material possessions. And it's OK. Fuck if I know I'm a heathen. I'm going to hell. I don't know. God is still I'm working not a on Christian, me. <laughs> but um, I, I did study a lot of it because I was not brought up in any religion. So mm -hmm. I was curious. So I yeah. did. I read the whole Bible. And, Shut the fuck up. Yeah, Are you I, serious? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I went to Bible studies. I, you know, I did all that stuff uh, just seeking to see, you know, see what it's all about. Front to back? <laughs> Do you know how long and boring that is? Oh, my God. I can't believe it. It's, I was wondering I don't today. remember is the Bible, all of it. Is but... the Bible on Audible? 
If it, if it I was bet it is. I might, <laughs> I might consider it. But other than that, nah. <laughs> but anyway, you can see the direct lineage from the holiness movement through to the prosperity gospel. There you go. Now, charismatic preachers and pimps do love money and uh, <laughs> and, and looking fresh to death. Now, uh, respect the drip, Karen. Okay. Uh, now, <laughs> um, so speaking of Reverend, you know, Deverne and Legrand, who's our subject today. Um, I don't know if you've seen. You, you, we'll put post pictures picture, of him, yeah. but he's his hairstyle, and it's not key to the story. But I do think it's it is interesting to discuss. And so, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy <laughs> and Beth. Now, the bishop's hair is obviously chemically straightened, and I was thinking of that scene in in the movie Malcolm X, and um, the process is called conch, a hairstyle that black men from the 1920s to the 1960s kind of al. Like it looks like an Al Sharpton kind of hair style um, that he rocked. And it's again chemically straightened of uh, tightly coiled or curled hair using lye. Oh. Um, remember the stuff that burned <laughs> yeah. uh, Brad Pitt's hand in the movie Fight Club? But beware <laughs> because lye can burn the shit out of your skin and your scalp. But if it yeah. burns, it's working. So <laughs> carry on. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, that's what was going on with religion during this time period. The place was the Crown Heights District of Brooklyn. Prior to colonization, large portions of what is now called Long Island and including present-day Brooklyn were occupied by the Lenape. Crown Heights, for the most part, a lower middle-class residential area, lies on both sides of the ridge of Eastern Parkway. The section was known as Crow Hill until 1916 when Crown Street was cut through. Crown Heights had begun as a fashionable residential neighborhood. Beginning in the early 1900s, many upper-class residences, including characteristic brownstone buildings, were erected along Eastern Parkway. Away from the parkway were a mixture of lower-middle-class residences. By the way, those brownstones now are not lower middle class. You don't no. have to be a gazillionaire to, uh, yeah. to even step foot in one. I don't I know. know. Yeah. So from the early 1920s through the 1960s, Crown Heights was an overwhelmingly white neighborhood and predominantly Jewish. Population changes began in the 1920s with newcomers from Jamaica and the West Indies, as well as African-Americans from the South. In 1950, the neighborhood was 89% white. By 1957, Black people made up about 25% of the population in Crown Heights. Following the end of World War II, suburbanization began to rapidly affect Crown Heights and Brooklyn. Black people from the South and immigrants from the Caribbean continued to move there, but white people were moving out. I call that white flight. Uh, in the 1960s, neighbor the neighborhood again experienced mass white flight. In 1960, the neighborhood was 70% white, but by 10 years later 1970 it was 70% black what a wow. flip yeah the truth about the haditha massacre has been covered up but not anymore I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. 
a new podcast from Crowd Network. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Now we're going to get into Legrand's early life. Hit it, Beth. Davernon Legrand was born in 1924 in Laurenburg, North Carolina, which is located southwest of Fayetteville. At the time, the population was about 3,000, so it was a small town. Mm, when Davernon was 12, he and his parents moved to Manhattan. Manhattan was not, not, not what it is today. No. Uh, so he worked as a chauffeur for Mother Robinson until her death. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe this was a woman by the name of Mother Lizzie Woods Robinson, an adherent of and the first, quote, supervisor over the woman's work, end quote, in the Church of God in Christ, which, as you might recall, was a prominent Pentecostal church. He then began working for Daniel E. Davis, who started up the New Day Holy Church of God in 1945. At some point, he met and married a woman named Helen Lloyd, and he brought her and his sister, Sarah Maloney, into the fold. His job at the New Day Holy Church of God was to procure women. Wow, that's a weird job to have in a church. Very interesting (laughs) job. He goes from driver to woman procurer. Now, the women would uh, dress up as nuns, sit in front of the department stores and other public places with a metal cup or plate held in the lap and beg for money. Alms for the poor. (laughs) The women were allowed to keep all of the cash except for $2.50 a day, which was eventually doubled to $5, and that was given to the church. The racket cleared well over a hundred grand a year. <gasps> what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. And that translates to about a million dollars today. Wow. Oh, my God. I am in the wrong business. Uh, <laughs> when do we go get our nun outfits? When, yes. You know, so I am a huge fan of Sister Act. Watched it in oh, the yeah, 90s yeah. when I was a kid. And I was like, 
I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'm going to be a nun <laughs> slash lounge singer. And that's how I'm going to make my money. And I'm going to, life is going to be great. I'm going to teach uh, young children how to sing at a nun school. But then I realized you have to be Catholic to be a nun. And I am not. So Aww, dreams shattered. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Never got over it. Now, in 1946, Legrand was arrested for failing to carry his draft card. In 1947, he was arrested for attempted rape and he received a suspended sentence for arranging an abortion. Mm. Wow. On April 18th, 1951, Vivian Stella Sanicola, quote, joined in union, unquote, with Dr. DeVernon Legrand. And this was according to her obituary. We don't know if they were ever legally married, but as far as we know, he was at that time still married to Helen. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Two-timer. In 1953, DeVernon Legrand, Helen Legrand, Sarah Maloney, and several others of the New Day Holy Church of God were arrested for solicitation and fraud. The women were given prison terms. DeVernon Legrand was acquitted. Mm. Legrand claimed that he was ordained in 1954 on Long Island and got a doctorate in psychology and theology from some unnamed institute in Newark. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> we didn't have Google back then, so you could have lied yeah, about everything. Anything, yeah, yeah. yeah. In 1956, he broke away from Daniel E. Davis and started his own church. Mm. At some point, Legrand married another woman named Ernestine Timmons. He divorced her in 1968 in Mexico. A few months later, he married yet another woman named Kathleen Kennedy, 23, who he'd been charged with raping. She bore him two children and Vivian San Nicola was still around. Yeah, and I don't know where Helen was at this time either. Mm. I, I'm pretty sure she did not. I mean, she spent some time in jail, but I'm sure she was out by then. Yeah. So, I don't know. Mm, he had a lot of women. A lot of women around him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that charismata, yeah. it, it put a spell on everybody. So now we're yeah. going to get into the timeline. What do you got for us, Beth? By the early 1960s, Legrand's church was located in a four-story townhouse at 222 Brooklyn Avenue in the Crown Heights District of Brooklyn. It was registered as St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord. DeVernon Legrand was the leader of the church, quote unquote, family. 222 Brooklyn Avenue becomes a notorious uh, spot yeah. in uh, the town, as we will find. But a sign hanging on the door at the townhouse said that Reverend DeVernon Doc Legrand was a doctor and physicologist. I have no idea what that is. Metaphysics and theology. Uh, Okay. Never heard of those things. <laughs> uh, meetings were held every Wednesday evening at 830. And he claimed to have healed 300 people. Um, now, this healing, this healing thing is interesting from, a, from again, from a Pentecostal church, church of God in Christ uh, perspective. My family is was heavy, heavy into um, Pentecostal uh, church and blessed oil. There was bottles of blessed oil everywhere. And blessed wow. oil is really just vegetable oil that somebody prays over. Right. Anyway, it, my, my grandmother swore it had healing healing properties. properties. Yeah. Yes, and so um, I had an uncle who was beat up, like beat to a pulp, like. People were like, we don't know if he's going to make it. And my grandmother was just like putting blessed oil all over his oh face gosh. and his body. And he was healed. 
So anyway, so I it worked. I guess it worked. Yeah. Uh, but I get this this idea of healing people that there are people in the church with healing properties, powers, powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is um, uh, I know it sounds like uh, <laughs> bullshit to you, Beth. And I, <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying, there's people out there who really believe it. So yeah, anyway. yeah. Uh, so Davernon Legrand's MO was to pick up young girls in his shiny cream colored Cadillac with its own bar and color television. He would make promises to take care of them and then take them back to the townhouse, ply them with drugs and alcohol and seduce them or sometimes just rape them. Yeah. And this all the doing drugs yeah. is not in the is not part not of something the church. you see no. in the church quite often. Now, the one, no. the alcohol thing, look. Jesus did turn water into wine, so party, yeah. party on everybody. Wine's okay, yeah, <laughs> it's, and it's got so much resveratrol in it. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. Those those things that he used. Now yeah. he would then force them to panhandle in nuns' clothing. Every morning, Legrand's fake nuns would pile into his Cadillac. Those are big cars, and then would drop them off at a different different locations across the city to beg. One source said that if the women and girls didn't bring home at least one hundred dollars a day, they would be beaten. Wow. Now, by the 1970s, Legrand was earning about $250,000 a year with his nun scams. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. The money that the nuns begged uh, was turned directly over to, to uh, DeVernon Legrand, who alone administered all church funds. And all, although these contributions were sought by women dressed in clerical garb, ostensibly for the purpose of supporting church work, relatively little religious activity actually took place within the church. Surprise! Yeah, it's, <laughs> it sounds like he's more, much more of a pimp than he is yeah. a clergyman. Right. Now, uh, instead, Legrand used the money not only to supply f- food and clothing for his quote-unquote family, but to pay for expensive gifts, cars, and trips for favored members of the group. And there were rumors of raucous parties ending in fights as drunken men and women spilled out into the streets. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's quite the church. Sign Isn't me up. It? Isn't it? Uh, I need to be saved. Have you heard Have you heard the good news? <laughs> the good news is there's yeah. a party tonight. That, right. <laughs> yes. Legrand preached on the first floor, uh, supposedly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the upper floors of the townhouse housed the people who lived there, which at one time included about 60 to 80 men, women, and children. That's Whoa. a lot. Yeah. Wow. Legrand himself fathered approximately 60 children oh my by God. several different women associated with the church. Whoa. Of these children, approximately 25 to 30 continued to reside with him. Now that's the highest number I've seen, Beth. Other of sources children. I saw, yeah, forty-seven that he fathered. Yes. Yeah, but, I'm not. I don't remember where I got that from, but all our sources are in the footnotes. So yeah, so <laughs> check it out if you want. Um, but wow, that is a lot. Now, as you might imagine, conditions were cramped, and it's been described as a warren. Which, if you don't know, I don't, but now we do. A warren is a group of holes in the ground connected by tunnels that rabbits live in. What? <laughs> The family lived in the tiny bedrooms upstairs. Kids were kept in cages, Jesus. starved and beaten. 
1965, there were reports that three women had gone missing from the Legrand house and perhaps had been murdered. Last seen in 1963 were Anne Cerise, Mary Horan, and Lulu King. Police dug up the basement of the house but found nothing. Legrand was charged with child abuse, though, so that's good. That Yeah, that's something. I mean, kids in cages? Come on, yeah, now. Yeah, that's, that's not cool. No. Now, according to Eugene Jarko, who investigated Legrand for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, quote, they had these tiny little rooms. The kids would stay there with their mothers or just run around everywhere, unquote. Jarkow admitted that he was charmed by Legrand to a certain degree. Quote, I liked him and I knew the horrors he committed, the grief he brought on this earth. The guy could have sold me anything. He was very charming. He was like an entertainer, unquote. Uh, I, I like in hearing this story, I imagine him like a like a little Richard or like that kind of charming. Like he yeah. could he could. I don't know if he played any instruments or sang, but I imagine he did. And just, whoo, he's just putting on a show. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, A a showman shaman, if you will. Now, a woman named Bernice Williams claimed to have been held prisoner at the townhouse for a week without access to food. Ernestine Timmons claimed that Legrand had beat her with his fists and a stick. And a woman named Betty Jean Davis said that Legrand had threatened her with a gun in June of 1964. Legrand was charged with kidnapping, assault, and firearms possession, but the charges did not stick. In 1968, police accused him of snatching a 23-year-old woman from her home, assaulting and raping her before she managed to escape. Again, the charges did not stick. That's a lot of ra- like rapes and and crimes and charges that don't stick. Don't stick. Now, yeah. Maybe he was paying the police to Yeah, that it. was there were rumors that he was uh bribing or had friends in the mm-hmm. police or something. Had to have because yeah. I mean also like it's the 60s who cares about women who cares right. about rape. That's true. But um yeah, uh so Legrand owned several Brooklyn properties and a 58 acre property upstate in the Catskill region dubbed Legrand. Grand Acres. Uh, welcome. I would love to have a place named Wendy Acres or Fruit Loops Acres. Uh, <laughs> keep those Patreons coming. So it was a former hotel and bungalow resort with white clapboard buildings and Deverna Legrand brought his family there each summer. Mr. and Mrs. John Robert Wicks, who lived on an adjacent farm about 150 yards away from the Legrand buildings, recalled, quote, he said he took care of orphans from the city and boys after they had been rehabilitated at Rockland State Hospital, unquote. And they believed him. They believed him. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. So according to Mrs. Wicks, about 45 members of the Legrand family would arrive in June and stay throughout the summer. She often heard gunfire, crying children, and loud parties at night. She described groups of Legrand children wandering all over the countryside, begging and stealing food, rifling mailboxes, and on at least one occasion, openly stealing furniture from a house <laughs> whose owners were away. That's a tough one to That's hide, pretty right? brazen. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> the Legrand group would ride their dozen or so horses over nearby fields, trampling down crops on neighboring farms. No! <laughs> Come on, guys! <laughs> the horses were left untended in the first winter of 1966, and one starved to death. No! 
I know. Oh my Over the years, other horses starved or died of maltreatment. And once a local workman was asked to use a bulldozer to dig a mass grave for a, a group of the Legrand horses. Oh, that's, my God. That's awful. Oh, my God. Ugh. But complaints against the Legrand seldom led to any official action. What? is up with that <laughs> uh so according to the wicks the legrand was always uh, was always polite to them and would express sympathy whenever they complained about the actions of the children quote he would always agree that the nuisances nuisances and thievery of the children was terrible and wrong unquote <laughs> now mrs wicks recalled that on one occasion legrand said that mr wicks should quote Take off his belt and give those naughty kids a licking, unquote. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. I don't think that I don't think that would have solved any no, of the problems. No, that's that's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Over the course of two decades, more than 20 women disappeared from the Crown Heights townhouse. In September of 1963, Legrand's common law wife, Anne Cerise, disappeared. Word is that Legrand had shot, beat, and murdered her, then dismembered her at the church. Oh, me, oh, my. In May of 1970, Ernestine Timmins, who had borne six of Legrand's children, also disappeared. Reports are that Legrand beat and kicked her to death during a drunken rage and then dismembered her body. Hard to do if you're fated, though. Just saying. The pieces... <laughs> Maybe he uh, he did it the next day or something. <laughs> oh, ah, slept it off. Okay, that makes sense. Now, the pieces were then placed in cellophane bags, but nobody knows what became of those bags, and she has never been found. On February 9th, 1974, a motorist searching for an open service station instead found two bodies. What? One in the snow in the East Flatbush section of Brooklyn. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the two men had apparently been shot somewhere else and their bodies dumped outside a manufacturing plant. The victims were identified as Howard Tippins, approximately 50, and Jeffrey Miranda, 25. Although an empty wallet was found, the police said they did not believe that it was a robbery. Later, Legrand's stepson, Stephen Strong Legrand, and two of his brothers were tried and convicted of their murders. Miranda had at one time lived at the townhouse, and apparently he'd learned a few things and tried branching out on his own. News articles at the time described Miranda and Tippins as pimps. This is the first point in the story where sex work is mentioned. The articles intimated that the women at the LeGrand house were sex workers and that Miranda and Tippins had kidnapped, raped, and held for ransom one of LeGrand's women, who the press called a prostitute. Uh, at the time, an uh, acceptable word. Now we say sex workers. Yes. So Stephen, along with his brothers, Aaron and Navatro LeGrand, talked to the men and convinced them that they could work something out if they met up. But instead, they shot Miranda and Tippins, execution style, and dumped their bodies at the location by the manufacturing plant. That same summer, a 15-year-old girl by the name of Elizabeth Brown was with some friends at Adventurers Inn, an amusement park in Queens. According to her sister Kathy, quote, she had a good heart but was very angry, very belligerent. Our father was sick with cancer and dying. She was looking for stability. A kid like that attracts dirtbags like magnets, unquote. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's a, ver- a vulnerable person in a vulnerable yeah. position. Oh, hey, uh, here comes a dirtbag now. Legrand <laughs> <laughs> rolled up in his chauffeur-driven cream-colored Cadillac and stepped out wearing a silk suit. Uh, I imagine alligator print shoes, no socks, <laughs> exuding wealth and charm. At the time, Legrand was 50 years old. Yeah, 50, and this girl's 15. Ah, man. That's gross. That is really (laughs) gross. No socks. (laughs) So that's the tipping point for you. No No socks. Oh, gross. I don't, you know, I think that the people, no socks is like a, prestige uh you know like your shoes are so fancy men with men with really fancy shoes and fancy suits you you know what i'm talking about no socks their ankles showing andy andy cohen was doing it the other day on watch what happens live on bravo and i've just seen it uh you know, uh, it just in my mind, it is like a, That's sign, a sign of wealth, <laughs> a sign of wealth, no socks, a sign no of success. Socks. Uh, but I mean, if you think about it, it's very gross. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, um, maybe they don't need to wear socks because, you know, like, when you're poor, you only have like one or two pairs of shoes. You know, mm. you can't wear no socks because they get all stinky. Right. But, right. You know, if you got a bunch of pairs of shoes, you can right. take you- turns i guess oh my gosh i I don't know what the mentality is somebody help us (laughs) tell us what what give us a culture corner what's the deal with no socks (laughs) (laughs) so 15 year old elizabeth brown became another one of legrand's girls begging in nun garb by day and doing drugs and having sex with him at night Mm. at some point elizabeth disappeared and was never heard from again on august 22nd 1974 legrand and his son noconda interesting name Uh, Yeah, he had a lot of interesting names for his kids. Yes, well, he had a lot of them. Also, uh, welcome to Culture Quarter. People, uh, you know, um, black people sometimes are criticized for having names that are too black. Just um, creative. Or too ethnic or too creative. But if you think about it, like a name like John or Beth, uh, at one time, those are weird ass names, No. So, I mean, give us a minute. We've only been free for a little while. Uh, yeah, so. and, and they're also white people names, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, his son, Nakonda, raped a young woman at the townhouse. Some reports say that she was 17. Others say she was 20. In any case, both men were arrested. Legrand was also to stand trial for bribery. Gladys Stewart, 18, who had married Legrand's 20-year-old stepson, Donald Stewart, had had enough of the family and wanted out. Mm. She had also secretly informed on Legrand during the bribery investigation, and she was scheduled to testify against him on the rape charge. On October 3rd, 1975, Gladys told Donald that she was leaving for good, and he flew into a rage. Legrand intervened and detained both Stewart and her sister, Yvonne Rivera, 16, who were just who were just there visiting. He ordered the rest of the family downstairs to the first floor meeting room for a quote-unquote party. He demanded that they stay, quote, until I tell you to come out, unquote. Men were posted at the doors of the room as guards and no one was permitted to leave, not even to go to the bathroom. Mm. Over the next two hours from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., Legrand and his stepson, Stephen, kicked and beat the two teens. At one point, one of Legrand's many daughters burst into the church's front room and said, quote, Daddy's stomping Gladys, unquote. 
Horrifying. The church handyman, Frank Holman, said he heard a woman scream and then led the group in hymns to keep them calm. They stayed there until 2.30 a.m. when Legrand came in and sent them all to bed. Weeks later, Legrand boasted he'd killed and dismembered the girls and had their remains incinerated at his upstate farm. And Kathleen Kennedy overheard him say to another one of his daughters, quote, let me tell you something. You all remember Gladys, daughter or no daughter. You'll join the bitch. You know what I do with bitches. I burn them. Unquote. Oh, my God. Yikes. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. So Gladys and Yvonne's mother, Laura Rivera, went to the townhouse looking for them. And the grand told her that they'd gone to the property in the Catskills. She came back two weeks later and was told that they'd come back but hadn't left with three men. She then went to the police and reported her two girls as missing. Two insiders, the grand's wife, Kathleen Kennedy, who had been forced to marry Legrand after he'd raped her, and the church handyman, Frank Holman, then came forward to say Legrand had killed his daughter-in-law, Gladys, and her sister, Yvonne, in a fit of rage. Kathleen told detectives, quote, my husband killed them, unquote, and explained that Frank Holman, quote, knows much more than I do. He helped get rid of the bodies, unquote. Kennedy and Holman told detectives that after the girls were murdered, they were dismembered in the Brooklyn church and their remains were transported to the property in the Catskills for disposal. Frank Holman told investigators that he was ordered to load two big garbage bags into his car and drive them to the farm. When he got there, something spilled from the bag. It was Yvonne Rivera's severed head. Santa Maria. So he dumped <laughs> he dumped the jumble of body parts into an old bathtub, doused them with paint thinner, and set the contents on fire. They burned for two hours and then put the ashy remains in a garbage can, which he tossed into a lake near the camp. He later led investigators to where the bone fragments were submerged. Did you talk about, I, I'm, I, please forgive me, uh, the, the bathtub is in a museum. Oh no, I didn't talk about that. Okay, so one of the sources I consulted, and I'm glad I'm bringing this up because I have to remember to put it in the footnotes. Uh, the, it, police officers have this police officer museum somewhere in New York, and this bathtub is there. Oh and my God. Police officers can sit in it if they want to. I don't think oh they're supposed my God. to. But, yeah. But one one officer I was listening to a podcast about this case and he worked on the case and he was like, Yeah, I, I sat in it. And uh they were like, Did you take a picture? He was like, No, of course not. They, he was ordered to get out. But yeah, the bathtub is still there wow. and used for oh, and the, this museum is it's only museum. available for police officers, for law oh enforcement. Oh my gosh. It's That's weird. not fair. I want to see know. it. I know. Fuck yeah, I want to <laughs> see it. <laughs> Uh, So anyway, sorry. Side note. Go ahead. Police found thousands of bones at LaGrand Acres upstate, dredged from Lake Briscoe. This was before DNA technology, obviously, so prosecutors had to rely on the work of an anthropologist to help identify bones that likely came from the remains of the two sisters, Yvonne and Gladys. Some jewelry that belonged to Yvonne Rivera was also found in Lake Briscoe. 
Disturbing material was found at the townhouse, including two hacksaws. I was wondering how he did all this <laughs> dismembering. Dismembering. Thank you. Yeah. Two hacksaws, an axe, three bloodstained bedsheets, a 22 caliber rifle, 11 shells, and a pair of scissors. Police believe that DeVernon Legrand had murdered a dozen or more victims, dumping some of them in Briscoe Lake. The list included three wives, two of Legrand's stepchildren, the Stewart sisters, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Miranda, and Howard Tippins. So now we're going to get into the trial. Hit it, Beth. Despite the fact that Gladys had disappeared before she could testify at the rape trial, Legrand and Naconda were convicted of the rape that had taken place on August 22, 1974. Legrand was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison, and Naconda got 8 years. Then on March 12, 1976, DeVernon Legrand was indicted for the murders of Gladys and Yvonne. In May of 1976, Legrand was indicted for a total of four counts of murder, including Gladys, Yvonne, and two of his wives, Anne Cerise and Ernestine Timmons. His stepson, 26-year-old Stephen Legrand, was also charged with murdering the Rivera sisters, plus two male victims, Howard Tippins and Jeffrey Miranda. Frank Holman was granted immunity in return for his testimony. The defense did not deny the murders, but claimed that they were committed by Gladys Stewart's husband, which in some articles they say is Donald Stewart, and in other articles they say is Daryl Stewart, but in any case, her husband. According to the defense, Stewart committed the murders with the help of the prosecution's own witness, Frank Holman, which, by the way, I feel bad for Frank. Uh, yeah. In support of these contentions, the defense called Stewart himself to testify. Daryl or Donald Stewart testified without hesitation that he had, in fact, murdered and dismembered the two sisters and had done the same to all the other women as well. Whoa. And Stewart actually produced in court several bones, which he claimed to be the amputated fingers of one of his other victims. Wow. But the jury did not buy it, and Legrand was convicted in the, of the 1976 murders of sisters Gladys Stewart and Yvonne Rivera, and with the 1970 murder of one of his wives, Ernestine Timmons. Legrand and his stepson, Stephen, each got 25 years to life. On August 26, 1977, three of Ernestine Timmons' children, ages 11, 10, and 8, were removed from the church and put into the custody of their maternal grandmother. A 14-year-old sister of the three children had already been taken out of the church. Sergeant Roger Zimmerman, who helped remove the children, described them as quote-unquote terrified animals who had been beaten and locked in closets. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. Nakanda Legrand, who had been convicted of rape alongside his father, was released in 1984 and started calling himself Reverend Dr. Nakanda and the head of St. John's Pentecostal of Crone Heights. No. Wow, it didn't go away. <laughs> Vernon Legrand died at Greenhaven Correctional Facility in 2006 at the age of 82. In Legrand's absence, Mother Vivian Sanicola, the head nun and Legrand's some sort of wife, <laughs> okay. kept St. John's Pentecostal of Crown Heights running, which still had no official accreditation. And in 2010, Legrand's daughter-in-law, Melindia Legrand, a.k.a. Sister Mindy, was caught, quote, pulling the same old sister act in Little Italy, unquote. Sister Act 2, you mean? Starring <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg and Lauren Hill? And Melindia Legrand, apparently. Wow! <laughs> 
<laughs> Dreams do come true. Uh, so dressed in a nun's habit with a cro- <laughs> back in the habit. Look at that. <laughs> back in the habit. <laughs> no, so dressed in a nun's <laughs> habit with a cross on her neck and a donation cup in her hand, she would tell passerby, passersby that she was raising money for, quote, children of St. Joseph's, end quote, and social programs run by St. Joseph's, an organ orphanage and social programs that do not exist. (laughs) According to New York's Attorney General, quote, the social programs do not exist, Melindia Legrand is not a nun, and St. Joseph's is not a functioning church. St. Joseph's is simply a front for fraudulent fundraising that is run by members of the Legrand family, which has a notorious history of crime in Brooklyn, unquote. The Attorney General said that St. Joseph's Church of Christ Incorporated was co-founded by Vivian Sanicola. Although a fraudulent fundraising, so many things could uh, be charged with being fraudulent fundraisers. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, So some of Legrand's adult children fought with Vivian Senecola, claiming her name was forged on the deed of 222 Brooklyn Avenue. We're going to rock down to 222 (laughs) Brooklyn Avenue. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) And another house, and that her name was forged to sell them. Vivian Santacola died on October 29th, 2016 in King Street, South Carolina, at the age of 82. Her obituary stated that, quote, she walked an average of 10 hours a day for 50 years just to ensure that light stayed on and the mortgage was paid, unquote. Uh, that's one way to put it, I guess. <laughs> right? Also, really enjoy the shade you just threw, Beth. Nice work. Uh, at the time of her death, she was living with a stepdaughter, Lazaria Prioliu. Prioliu filed a police report on October 21st, claiming that one of the oldest Legrand brothers showed up at an adult facility where Senecola spent weekdays. She claimed that the brother took mother out in a van and that Senecola spent the next two nights too afraid to sleep. Priolu said Senecola started foaming at the mouth on October 29th and then died. The infighting continued over the Legrand house, which at the time was valued at more than $1.1 million. Wow. Yeah, and possibly as much as $2 million. Yeah. But if you, well, now that we're past the pandemic and houses are priced 25% higher than normal, yeah. $3 million. I don't know. <laughs> but if you look at Google Maps today, it appears that the building was has now been boarded up. Some of the adult children who grew up in the house and lost their moms want to know the story behind the women's disappearances. Mm. Shayama Legrand, who last saw her mother when she was about four years old, said, quote, I just want to know what happened to my mom, unquote. Mm. Chayama said that when she was 12, one of DeVernon Legrand's older sons told Shayana that her he'd helped her mother, Bernice Williams, escape and that her mom said, quote, whatever I do, wherever I go, just tell my girls that I love them, unquote. But Chayama is haunted by doubt that her mother really escaped. Yeah, and uh, she probably didn't. But that was really nice of her brother to to tell her that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. As an aside, while researching this topic, I stumbled across some forums where people are still talking about the Legrand family, not the ones from the time period that we covered, but the ones who still live in the area today. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the sources, the the police officers who got in the bathtub, uh, (laughs) they were talking about how the house is still is still there. And the um, Legrand family is still 
present in the area and there are still nuns doing this same scam stuff yeah yeah Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. So now we're going to get into what we think made Legrand snap and our takeaways. What do you got for us, Beth? What are your thoughts? Tell us. Well, obviously, some narcissism was involved. Hello, somebody. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was apparently very charming. I mm-hmm. mean, that even that police officer liked him. So Yeah, yeah. But uh, he did not appear to have any empathy. No. Yeah. And the re- religion aspect I found really interesting. It seems like he saw religion as bogus and uh, just a way to manipulate people like psychopaths do. Or he really believed it. The religion? No, I don't think he did. No? Okay. Mm-mm. Uh, <laughs> because he was not very religious. <laughs> just yeah. though his behavior was uh, atrocious. So was, I don't, I don't think he really believed it. I think he saw it as... Uh, something that other people foolishly believed in and that he could use to manipulate them. Mm, okay. Okay. Anyway, I don't okay. know. Okay. I see, I <laughs> just, see you and your takeaways over there. Okay. Just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of articles describe this as a cult, but yeah. I don't think it was a cult so much as just a scam. Mm. Well, what's and, the difference? Oh, well, because of the religion. I don't, I really don't think there was a lot of religion involved. Uh-huh. Got so, you. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Legrand learned his tricks early on from the other preacher. He just copied him, uh-huh. but uh, he was worse. He kept mm-hmm. all the money. I mean, I thought the women were, were doing pretty good in, in the other church. Or they only had to give the church like $2.50 a day, and they got to keep all the rest of it. But right, right. Legrand kept all the money mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. abused and, and even murdered his followers. And he mm-hmm treated the children abominably yep very very badly (laughs) yes terribly Uh yeah (laughs) and he seemed to use tactics more akin to like what pimps use yes rather than what preachers use i mean he presented himself like a preacher but his behavior which included lots of sex drugs and alcohol was nothing preacher like and Hmm. the the women had to have seen that almost right away so he had to use these like pimp tactics to keep them there Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and this case i i thought it was mind-blowing Whoa, mind-blowing. Okay. Because I never heard of it before. Yeah. And keeping track of everything that happened and all of his wives and crimes uh, was really difficult. And putting together, like, a script to kind of lay it out. Like, Jesus Christ, so much happened. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't believe I never heard of this guy before. Um, I agree. I agree. uh, We all know why. 
Yes. It starts with an R and ends with aceism. <laughs> Everybody. Um well yeah, I I I agree and disagree. I think okay, okay. it takes a special personality to become a uh preacher. And um one thing I think was interesting is is the preacher aspect and um you know, black people are always in this pursuit of black excellence as a sort of a way out or a way to level up or be acceptable and safe in dominant society, a.k.a. white society. Right. And there are certain professions that are safe bets. Like, right. I mean, to get money. <laughs> Dope yeah. boys, uh, ballers, entertainers and clergymen. Now, stop. Um, stop right there. What's a baller? like a basketball player oh, uh, oh yeah okay, yeah, okay. Ra- i mean a rapper or a be i mean nobody nobody's ever gonna be a beyonce but like somebody like that right okay, okay. in the public eye who makes a lot of money and All a clergyman right, okay. is is not unlike those other things right um and i grew up in a pentecostal cho- church and the preacher always had the nicest cars the goldest of change fur coats (laughs) his wife always had fur coats her hair was always done and i was i just was always like man whoo and he was charming charming um and i think that there are a lot of similarities between preachers and pimps like there's a Venn diagram of those two things <laughs> and they overlap a lot. A lot. And again, yeah. you have to be charming. Pimps are very, very smart and excellent manipulators and preachers can be too. Yeah. Not all preachers are good. So um, he might not have been preacher like or Chris Christian Christian like in that he wasn't he engaged. just not good. <laughs> yeah, he was he, terrible. He engaged like there are there are these things called the Ten Commandments, and he broke all every of every single one of them. <laughs> but, but in but I I really think in his mind he believed that he was a faithful man of God, which is which is scary. Right? Yeah, very it scary. Makes it, it makes it a lot worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, I didn't, I, I don't know much about the mob. I don't give a fuck about the mob because they're all white, and right. I have no relation to them. But I, this story to me sounded like a crime family. Yeah, right. But the media and entertainment and law enforcement didn't characterize them that way because it was black people run by a black right, man. Right. So anyway, those are my thoughts. So now yeah. we're gonna get into how how. Oh, but please let us know what y'all think as always. Yeah. Uh, Phone number is 602-935-6294. Drop something for (laughs) us. Yeah. Let us know. So uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So this is from our main man, Marcus. uh, And it was just a suggestion. There are these microchip manicures. Now, according to CNN.com, there's a beauty salon in Dubai. Oh, so you have to go just to to hop, skip, and jump away. Yeah. My bank bank account will allow it. Not. uh, But it's giving new meaning to the phrase chipped nails. And Lenore Beauty Lounge is offering tiny microchips for customer 
fingernails. And the chips have information embedded in them that allows Ooh. it to be used as a digital business card, wow. pass, or information with your in- Instagram handle. But it can also be a way to track you if you get kidnapped or something like that. So the right, hope is right. that the microchip will eventually have other uses in the future. Um, but anyway, I thought it was a neat idea. Yeah, that is a neat idea. But for reals related to the story. There was this human trafficking element to this, right? Via the exploitation of vulnerable women and femmes and people. And imagine if somebody had called an authority other than the police or, you know, these women. uh, I'm thinking of one of the women who was um, used to testify against Legrand and he found out and and she died. Killed her. So, yeah. yeah, So if, if maybe an authority other than the police had been called or involved and um, sought safety and help um, rather than, you know, punitive measures for for these women for solicitation or whatever. So National Human Trafficking has a hotline. Their hotline number is 1-888-373-7888. Or you can text 233-733 if you see something, say something with regard to suspected human trafficking. Or if you are involved in that somehow and need help or know somebody who needs resources or assistance. So Awesome. Okay, shout out time. Now we're going to move on to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content by or about any marginalized, othered, or underrepresented groups of folks. I just wanted to shout out if you have not already seen Eliza Matsanuga documentary on Netflix. It is a true crime goodie. Yeah, I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Oh my God, I couldn't it believe good. it. Yeah. Uh, and also The Vanishing of Harry Pace is a true crime investigative journalism podcast about Harry Pace, who is a white passing black guy who started America's uh, first black owned record company. And oh, wow. there's no there's like no recordings or video of him, just a lot of stories about him in, in the zeitgeist. And then last one, the anti-trans hate machine, a plot against equality is a podcast about um, the hundreds of anti-trans uh, legislation that has popped up in recent years. Um, and it just talks, it interviews people, it talks to legislatures or legislators and and, and politicians and all kinds of stuff. It's really, really interesting and a, a good um, education for all of us on trans cool. st- issues. Yeah, thank you. What do you got? I wanted to shout out a podcast called You're Wrong About. Oh, I love that one. Do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so... Mike, who's a gay man, and Sarah, I think they're both white, but uh-huh. uh, they're journalists obsessed with the past. Yes. And every week they reconsider an event, person, or phenomenon that's been miscast in the public imagination. And they have, like, I don't know how many episodes about the O.J. Simpson trial. It's uh, like listen to all of them. A lot. Yeah, me too. A lot. A lot. The Princess <laughs> Diana episode. I mean, ev- everything you can imagine, they get deep down dirty into it, and you yeah. listen so much it's such and a they're good they're really smart and they're uh-huh. they're entertaining and mm-hmm. funny so uh yeah Agreed. So one more time, that's uh, Eliza Matsnuga documentary on Netflix, The Vanishing of Harry Pace podcast, anywhere you get your podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, a plot against equality podcast, and You're Wrong About podcast. Now, this has been so wonderful, but that's all for today. 
in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. So, so true. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.